Welcome to the Where Two or Three podcast, Christian thinkers finding their place at the table of communication scholarship. Before we begin, the views and discussions of this podcast do not necessarily reflect agreement with the views of Martin Luther College. Yeah, that might actually matter this time, John, because of my dessert. <laughs> my dessert is going to be about The Chosen, which I think they're the TV show, The Chosen. There are probably other opinions out there, so I'm not going to stick an official one, but I do really like love the show. So anyway. Interesting. Do you I'm have hungry. dessert lined I'm up? Hungry. I forgot I'm, to... I, uh, as usual, I came unprepared with, with, the, with <laughs> okay. the dessert, okay. but I'll, I'm sure I'll find... I. I'm sure you, I'll think of something along You the live way. an interesting life. I'm sure that you will have no trouble. <laughs> um, yeah, let's, uh, let me have the usual prayer. We pray. The eyes of all wait upon thee, O Lord, and thou givest them their food at the proper time. Thou openest thine hand and satisfiest the desire of every living thing. Amen. Amen. Yeah, so this is, I think, our final episode on apologetics, um, and it's going to be mostly about positive arguments. So I was going to have a devotion on this text. I'm going to read it anyway, but then I'm going to actually read a short devotion again that I've written, and I'm not going to keep doing that, but I just have one that fits exactly what I plan to talk about. So from John 5, I'll read this first. So Jesus Because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, he just healed a man at the pool of Bethesda. The Jews persecuted him. Jesus said to them, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So this is the word of God, and the question is, did Jesus claim to be God? How did he make that claim? Uh, how, how often did he make that claim? And, and I like to start with the thought that this is how Jewish ears heard him. The casual way he talks about his father, they said he makes himself equal with God. And so that's what this devotion is about, a different text, but with the same scandalous thing. So <clears throat> just reading here. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. This is from Luke chapter 23. For some of us, if we are so blessed, Father is among the warmest of words. For others, Father names an emptiness, a familiar ache. For someone who combines soul-calming strength with tenderest affection, take to the grave wisdom with predictable grace, someone who is completely yours. The way Jesus spoke of his Father landed on most Jewish ears as blasphemy, an essential robbing from God what was his alone. It was the intimate, even casual way Jesus spoke of and to the Lord of the universe. It was Abba this and Abba that. Of course, Abba is an Aramaic for father. Abba this and Abba that. In the Hebrew manner of speaking, son of glory means glory through and through. Just so, there is no less than in being the son of God. He is God through and through. This is robe-tearing stuff. And so we come to one final scandal. This one shouted to the sky in the hearing of an astonished crowd. Coming, Abba, Christ cries. With that, Jesus poured out his spirit like holy wine unto the altar of God, an act of pure devotion, so like his life, 
in a sublime death that counts as yours. Then the homecoming, the hero's welcome, angel, angel applause. There's no blasphemy here, no stealing from heaven. It's a holy mystery that God gives himself to God in that moment. The seventh word from the cross recalls a Jewish bedtime prayer. As you fall back nightly into the helplessness of sleep, you may practice just this sort of falling into God. Our Lord has opened up a new way to die and a whole new way to live. Jesus was quoting David in Psalm 31 about a time of deep struggle. So you can do the same. Remember the Father's hands when things get dark. Learn from Luther to perpetually commend every last thing that matters, everything you care about, everyone you love, even your own soul, into the hands of God. He learned that from Jesus. By word and spirit, smiling or sighing, your way of life can be Abba this and Abba that. Jesus really lives as surely as he really died for us all. He said the loveliest thing to Mary on that stunning Sunday morning. He told her in John 20 that he would soon ascend to, quote, my God and yours. And then this, beloved, to fill every empty place inside. He said, I'm going to my Father and yours. The prayer, Jesus, teach me to live in serene confidence because you lived and died for me. Let me die with an eager, cheerful word. Coming, Abba. Amen. So I found it um, to be a lively topic in a Bible study, for example. Um, not to put you on the spot, but you can react if you like. Just the simple question, um, if someone says Jesus never claimed to be God, well, how did he actually make that claim? Um, in countless fascinating ways. Does anything come to mind for you? I shouldn't put you on the spot. But. I, yeah, I, I would object pretty quickly, and then I'd probably just find passages like that where it's very clear the relation that he's making uh, to, you know, God the Father and to yeah. Yeah, the equality that's um, latent in, in the way that he says that. Yeah, and I think that's a good answer because you don't have to know everything on the spot. You can just welcome that question and be glad to hear it and then go for a search. Yeah, and you, and can, if, you can even challenge the person who's you know making that claim and you can say, well, where does, wh- if he's not claiming to be God, what is he claiming to be? And can you, sh- like, where do you find that he's claiming to be this mm-hmm. thing that is not God? And, yeah. then wh- and then they bring the material right to you in that <laughs> Yeah, and any question opens the Gospels. I mean, you just got to say a little thank you, God, in your mm-hmm. head, because that's what you want, right? So I had a chance to think about this. Um, Jesus saying, I sent you the prophets. Um, Jesus receiving the worship of his disciples on the Sea of Galilee when he had calmed it. Um, so only God can be worshipped. Anything else is blasphemy, as I said. Well, he receives their worship. He doesn't stop them. He forgives a paralyzed man, and he knows what they're thinking. Only God can forgive sins, and then he proves that he has the authority to do it. Um, before Abraham was, I am. Uh, and then what I, I don't know what to call it, um, the, the mind-bending grammar of that sentence. Mm-hmm. Before Abraham was, I am. And I am, of course, is the Yahweh himself talking at the burning bush. And finally, put on oath, um, are you the Christ, the Son of the living God? Put on oath by the high priest, he says, I am there as well. And so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's such it's, a unique thing that yeah. the gravitational center of this teacher's teaching was that he is God in flesh. 
Mm-hmm. And I think the the rest of scriptures also point to him as God very clearly as well. So it's like taking the rest of the New Testament, the way that, you know, John 1 is a very, one of my famous parts of scripture where it's, you know, that also has some mind bending grammar in, in, mm-hmm. in it, but, but. Uh, in the beginning was God, God yeah. was the word mm-hmm. that, that phrase you get to. God and then you go, was the and then word. you go, yeah. And then, and it's right into the story. Does, does John talk about Jesus birth at all? I think briefly, not as much as Luke. No, he, no, he, he goes leaves right it to into the, talking uh, about Christ at least. Right. The other gospels have established that already. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? The, yeah. Well, Old Testament too. I mean, Isaiah prophesied, um, mm-hmm. a virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and the name shall be called God with us. Mm-hmm. Um, Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. His name shall be called Mighty God is among those names. Mm-hmm. Mighty God is the baby's name. And yeah. so it was prophesied that one would come who would, would be God in flesh. And I'm just with, off the top of my head because I, I was put on the spot, but it was Jesus was tempted for 40 days and 40 nights, I believe. And was there, he's encountering Satan there. Was there also another angel as well who, you know, that... that I believe angels come as such. Yeah, after, angels, afterwards, afterwards they come in. Uh, I'd have to check that reference. The angels yeah. come to serve him after the ordeal. Mm-hmm. But what was interesting there is that you might think we might talk about eventually. Who knows today? Certain messianic prophecies, but it's bigger than just certain messianic prophecies. That really all the lines of the Old Testament meet in Jesus. He is the true Israel. Israel, who suffered for 40 years in the desert, well, he has 40 days, right? The whole mm-hmm. sacrificial system, all the imagery, the promised land, and, and the priesthood, and the line of kings, and everything, all the lines of the Old Testament really meet in Jesus. Mm-hmm. And he casts his, casts his shadow backwards across all of it. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, the whole scripture's lined up on this question. It isn't just having to sort of torturously interpret a few verses. Yeah. This is the center of his claim. Um, and was it, wasn't one of the last words on the cross also, you know, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. The, mm-hmm. the last, the last thing to do is asking for a drink, I believe, where like before the song, before the cry, yeah, before the cry, it is finished. Yeah. yeah. And into, into your hands. And, and so, my spirit. yeah, all of it is just pointing to that one direction. Very. Right. Mm, right. Yeah. So a, a person could casually assume that the story of Jesus is one of many if you just were kind of thoughtless about it, but Jesus really is the towering figure in history and the unique figure in history. And as far as claiming to be God, most people who, the closer you get to God, the more unworthy you feel. And mm-hmm. Jesus, though he's God himself in flesh, is self-consciously innocent. Um, those who've claimed to be God in history tend to be megalomaniacs. Jesus can properly refer to his heart as gentle and lowly. I'm gentle and lowly of heart. And so this is just a unique, a unique character and an unrepeatable story, really. There's two lists, the greatest men in history, arguably, and those who claim to be God. And only this one person is on both those lists, which just makes him completely unique. And again, the central figure in the human story. And so you've heard this before. I was kind of, all this to get to one other really interesting positive arguments for Jesus, having dealt with defeaters in the last um, episode or two, is C.S. Lewis on liar, lunatic, Lord. And so 
point is that people have a residual respect for Jesus still today. It was maybe more true in C.S. Lewis' day, but it's still true that people respect him and they want to call him a great moral teacher. And Lewis's point is that you can't dismiss him as a great moral teacher. If the center of his teaching is to be God in flesh, then you have to deal with that claim. And he says, speaking logically, there are three possibilities. He's a liar. And you just ask, how much sense does that make? Not just to take his lie to death, but to take a lie to the kind of death he died. Or lunatic. Um, and by the way, liar would make him just the worst shyster in history, just the, the, the ugliest figure in history, to die that way in order to have a whole mass of people die for him and die with him. Um, mm-hmm. And so does that fit with the moral beauty of his life? Does that fit with um, the ethical beauty? Uh, same, same thing with, well, was he a lunatic? Did he say he was God and believe it, but he was crazy? And that for sure doesn't fit the profile of someone who leaves behind the greatest ethic and the most beautiful set of teachings the world has ever seen. Uh, lunatics aren't like that. I've met a couple in my lifetime. That's not what they. <laughs> that's not what they're able to do. <laughs> Just trust me on this. Now, some would add legend to the formula. Was he just a legend then? We've already think dismissed that out of hand. I've got, I've got best before me if we need it on my desk here. Josh McDowell, McDowell's evidence that demands a verdict, and he has pages after pages after pages of Old Testament secular and Jewish testimony to the historical person of Jesus. Which it's not like we need that because people act as if the gospels somehow don't count, and we'll get into why they count, you know, in this episode. I'm sure. But is that a good recess resource to what is that one? Is that a good one to to look up for? It's ju- maybe it's it's just so comprehensive. It's probably over a decade or two old by now. I'm, I'm mm-hmm. sure it is. I had it when I was a pastor already on my shelf, but it is a kind of an encyclopedia of information. Mm-hmm. So from, yeah, from that standpoint, Josh McDowell still does stand up, I think, pretty well. Um, but so, liar, lunatic, or lord, these are the options you're left with. Mm-hmm. And so, there it is. <laughs> Which just, again, it ties to the fact that, no, there is no one like this figure. And mm-hmm. as we've said before, in a different context, a person ought to have an opinion about someone as important as this, given the importance of his claim. Now, Lewis said, it can either be, Christianity can either be of infinite importance or no importance. It can't be in between. And so a person ought to, well, who do you say Jesus Christ is? The, the very question he posed so often to the crowds and to his disciples. Who do you mm-hmm. say he is? It's just a question that's fun to ask. So any other kind of responses to that? I kind of, transitioning to our topic, I've got a couple things to say, but. Yeah, go. that's an that's an interesting uh, to to posit, you know, liar, lunatic, or lord as like the here are the three potential outcomes. One of these is going to be true by nature of you know, it's a kind of all encompassing covers the whole spectrum of possibility. Yeah, and so then to use that as okay, let's seriously evaluate each one of these mm-hmm. from the the information that we have the you know, the scriptures themselves, the historical evidence that we're, we're able to, you know, see today and determine which one of these is uh, maybe not necessarily like you can rigorously prove that this is exactly it, but like, where are all the signs pointing 
and to to go from there. I'm curious where this would come up in, in you know if you were having a conversation with someone, an apologetic conversation, and this where where does this usually come up? Do you think is this I, you're I, making a uh, you've maybe the balls in your court now? You've it's in an, you're starting to, starting to make a positive argument, uh, making a case for Christ as as God, and this is where you would you know one of the places you could begin. Well, I think even before that, I, I have had this conversation as a missionary in my former life um, several times. And what brought it up was a person dismissing Jesus as a great teacher. That's how it comes mm-hmm. up. Who do you think Jesus is? Well, he was a great teacher. Well, okay, let's look at that. Does it make sense to dismiss him as that in light of what he said? And yeah. no, he actually didn't leave that option open to you to say he's that and nothing more. That's just not mm-hmm. one of the possibilities, right? And so, yeah, it does come up. I think it's the stone in the shoe. It's, okay, I dismissed Jesus for a reason that I realize now doesn't make that much sense. So it's, it's like where you would go when someone makes that argument that's kind of a convenient argument to make so that you don't have to like actually examine it. And then this exactly is where you right. go to actually examine this and say like, okay, well, if he, if he was just that, what are, you know, here, well, here's the totality of what's possible, and, and then that's one of them. Uh, wh- where does everything lead to from the evidence yeah. that we have? And it could be, here's the dozen ways I can think of off the top of my head that he did make, make that claim to be God. And so mm-hmm. the question can be framed as, what do you make of that? Mm-hmm. What do you make of that claim? You know? So, I mean, back to the legend thing, no one has left a greater wake in human history. No one. No one comes close. Mm-hmm. No one has affected more people spiritually um, to this day. No one comes close. And so it's a figure that's worth contending with, you know. Um, and sometimes I have to say it almost in terms of, okay, I know that you reject Jesus. I know that you reject um, the story. Let's mm-hmm. just at least know who it is that you're rejecting. And to bring people into contact with his teaching, um, People loved him or hated him or were afraid of him, but nobody walked away bored just by the character of Jesus and the way he gets under your skin and the way he challenges and the way his words resonate to those who believe them and, and comfort and sustain. And so, yeah, it's just, it's a nice, I said before, to bring up the question in a Bible study, let's say, how did Jesus claim to be God becomes typically a very rich conversation because you're dealing with the man and his works and his sayings and Incredible. Yeah. Before so, we, before it, it leaves oh, my mind, I think there's also we're talking mostly about you know Christ as he appears in the New Testament. There are also, and and this is where I could be remembering incorrectly, but there's the angel of the Lord. The phrase that comes up repeatedly throughout the Old Testament is is this referring to the pre-incarnate Christ? Is that the that might be how I remember it was taught in school. I'm not sure if it's relevant for this conversation, but I'm just trying to think of all the other places in scripture where we're talking about the same thing and to see, you know, what do the arrows look like from that side of, of the, of Christ's birth? It's very, very relevant because it'd be surprising if Jesus is who he claimed to be, to not meet him in the old Testament would be surprising. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the main ways you meet him is the Hebrew is Malach Haronai, which is, um, not a created angel, but the word malach has to do with malach has to do with someone on a prescribed task, someone commissioned 
someone sent on a mission, typically to speak. And so it fits perfectly with with uh, Christ as the Word in the New mm-hmm. Testament, the Gospel mm-hmm. of John. Jesus is what God has to say to this world. <clears throat> it is his Son. And so there are seven s- extended narratives in the Old Testament that have this feature in which you'll hear about the angel of the Lord. For example, in the, the burning bush episode, the angel of the Lord is in the middle of the bush. Metochaseneh is in the middle of the bush. And then the next verse, it is God himself or Yahweh himself is in the same descriptor, the middle of the bush. And so there are seven stories that do that. Uh, the rescue or when God stops um, Abraham from killing Isaac, his son, mm-hmm. as a sacrifice. It's the exact same thing. The angel of the Lord and the Lord himself are used interchangeably in a way that's unmistakable. Almost as <clears> if, <throat> you know, the same, if they're a person they're the had, same. you know, the first name, their last name, you're just using the different... Exactly right. You're talking about the same thing. That's the way that the language it's, works. Exactly right. It's a very solid technical argument you can make quite easily just by looking. Even the English will show you this. Mm-hmm. So sometimes I like to read this Jewish Publication Society commentary um, just because of things that they see in the text that we might miss. But um, the Jewish Publication Society commentary on Exodus has this whole long footnote that talks about, quote, the hopeless confusion of God and an angel, unquote. Which means, from a Jewish perspective, from a monotheistic perspective, you really can't make any sense of that. Mm-hmm. And and so our fathers have been very confident in saying what you have said. This has to be the pre-incarnate Christ. And it's a fit. It just is a nice, nice fit because mm-hmm. he is the messenger. He's the word. Yeah. That's the symbology that I find particularly beautiful is because that's interwoven through, you know, how many different layers of that can you find mm-hmm. in everything that Jesus does, both for, you know, while he was walking on earth versus how he plays throughout the totality of history. And it starts far, with, and, yeah. in the beginning, um, God said, it starts with God speaking mm-hmm. in Genesis mm-hmm. 1, that this is this, this is word, yeah. right? So, yep. yeah. It's just, there's a lot of layers to it, which is, oh, yeah. you yeah. know, maybe not a rigorous argument saying this exactly equals this, but it's another one of those signposts that's pointing towards something that is kind of yep. unraveling in front of us. So, yeah. Definitely. There's an amazing thing in Proverbs 8 where wisdom um, begins to speak about being present at creation and it becomes clear that wisdom is capital W, that wisdom is, um, mm-hmm. the word is Chachman Hebrew, that wisdom is Christ speaking. He says some things that only Christ could say mm-hmm. in Proverbs 8. It's just incredible. And so, yeah, our minds are prepared to meet Jesus in the Old Testament. We're not going to find him where he isn't there. Yeah. We want to be you know, disciplined and honest about things, but that's just one way that his presence does show up, and I'm convinced of it. Yeah. What would it have been like for the, and maybe this is even farther off topic, but the, <laughs> but the uh, I'm trying to imagine what it would be like for uh, the Jewish nation, the nation of Israel before Christ came. How did they, when they read these things, how are they seeing this? Or the, is it is it just part of the part of the promise that's being awaited is, or how are they, are they making, you know, are they looking farther into it? Like we're, we're unpacking, you know, here's in the middle of the bush, here's the angel of the Lord in the middle of the bush. 
how how do these things what what is that saying how do we how do you interpret that how does the you know the old testament believer uh approach that and may, is there anything there worth unpacking as well i think i'd have to step back and study that some because mm. you can you can find out with reference works which prophecies were taken to be messianic and which were not until until mm-hmm. in hindsight we could see christ there yeah. so that would be we have kind that of benefit a, yeah 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 yeah, that's, that's all that's oh, okay. all i had i was just it's okay. just a, i mean i could start to, to speculate myself. and I, I wouldn't yeah. be confident though and maybe that's maybe that's what some. most of it would be uh just taking the the cultural you know the way that the israelites were the, you know they had synagogues here's how they worshiped here's how this would have been like to them is uh i find it interesting but maybe right. it's not as exact, maybe it, it, it would just be speculation Regardless, well, we still have the benefit of that hindsight, being able to you know connect all of those dots now instead right. of <clears throat> still waiting for something right. that's it's a been profound, promised yet to happen. Profound advantage how we're situated historically looking back. So Augustine has his famous statement, the, oh, let's see. the New Testament is in the Old Concealed, the Old Testament is in the New Revealed. I might have that backwards, but you get the idea. So mm-hmm. it's that, that in hindsight... We can see a full Trinitarian doctrine. We can see the two natures of Christ, all that being taught. We can mm-hmm. see salvation by faith, by grace through faith. All that's there. <clears throat> Somewhat, well, just not having the same explicit nature as we have, looking back mm-hmm. upon the fulfillment all in Christ. So so you wonder what scandalized them. I don't know, God having a son, did that scandalize them? Because um, mm-hmm. it's there in the Old Testament. What do they do with that? That'd be a matter of deeper study, I think. Yeah. So I was thinking, you know, whether these episodes on apologetics are still in the sweet spot, I call it, of our podcast. You know, our podcast is Christians finding their place at the table of communication scholarship. And the one thing that occurs to me is that this really is Christians just finding their place at at any academic table because Christianity is so dismissed at the university as if... um, we somehow cling to this strange cultural relic we've talked about. It sounds like a fairy tale. Um, and so there are books out there, like I think I might have mentioned Marsden, the outrageous idea of Christian scholarship kind of tells that story of how Christians thinkers first got dismissed um, from academia. Uh, Gene Veet's Loving God with All Your Mind I've talked about is another book that says, no, 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 Christian thinking has every advantage at the university. You're dealing with whatever the puzzles there might be. But I found another thing. This might be a segue from last time. We talked about science some, and mm-hmm. then to getting into our real topic, finally. I just want to read something. This is um, half a page. Well, we talked about Ravi Zacharias, and sometimes Ravi Zacharias, he was giving um, a, a speech or was involved in a debate with some atheist or whatever. He would hold out his phone. He would pull out his phone. He would read a quote, and this is from a man named Bert. Berlinski. He's a renowned living mathematician. He's a philosopher, a writer. He is skeptical about God's existence, Berlinski is, and yet he's a thoughtful person who's um, not afraid to call things as they are. So here's Rabbi Zacharias um, quoting Berlinski, who's a, he's a neat guy to listen to, even though we don't agree with Berlinski. But here's the quote. Has anyone provided a proof of God's inexistence? Not even close. 
Has quantum cosmology explained the emergence of the universe or why it is here? Not even close. Have the sciences explained why our universe seems to be fine-tuned to allow for the existence of life? Not even close. Are physicists and biologists willing to believe in anything so long as it is not religious thought? Close enough. Has rationalism in moral thought provided us with an understanding of what is good, what is right, and what is moral? Not close enough. Has secularism in the 20th, in the terrible 20th century, been a force for good? Not even close to being close. Is there a narrow and oppressive orthodoxy of thought and opinion within the sciences? Close enough. Two more. Does anything in the sciences or in their philosophies justify the claim that religious belief is irrational? Not even in the ballpark. Is scientific atheism a frivolous exercise in intellectual contempt? Dead on. And so, just coming from the mouth of a skeptic, it just kind of stirs the blood, I think, that mm-hmm. that uh, teaches us to, we said last time, admire science, but not be intimidated by the dogmatism in science. Um, because there are plenty of scientists that believe just as you and I do, uh, based on how they've read the evidence. So, anyway. So, that takes us into a series of positive arguments um, for Christian truth. And we're both looking at the same document, I think, right, John? As which what's on the, the phenomenal reliability of the New Testament. Yes, we'll start there. Oh, by the way, I've been forgetting to call you professor. I'm so, <laughs> so sorry about that. No, no, no. I, I feel like uh, I've been... so. A little background for this inside <laughs> joke now. So uh, we had a a listener who reached out, or somehow my father heard about. Um, was told about someone listening to this and thinking that I was a a professor at MLC, which could not be, maybe, maybe it could be farther from the truth, but it is not true. (laughs) It's, it's, uh, I think there was a time in my life where that was, you know, if if that was a button that I could push, I would have, you know, done it immediately. Mm, Um, Maybe I am not a professor though at MLC. I am a, uh, video producer in the middle of Colorado Springs. So, um, but very You're blowing many to... people's minds right now. <laughs> no, really? He's maybe, not a... Maybe, no. And you have your master's in communication. I do. So that's where I think the, the main similarity is, is that mm-hmm. we both went through the same uh, grad school program at uh, Minnesota State University, Mankato. Yep. I hope I got those words in the right way. Yeah, order. yeah. We know yeah, the same so, people. And... <laughs> we had the same advisor... Um, my, Dr. my Dr. advisor Cranin. board. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 Hello, uh, Christy. Uh, <laughs> I, had, I had two other Christies that were on my, 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 uh, <laughs> really? thesis review. Yeah. I did that on purpose. It was just, it has <laughs> happened that way. Um, but yeah, uh, uh, very fond memories of that program. Learned quite a bit. Me too. Am I using that degree specifically? No, but do I use it every day? Yes. Uh, it yeah. really helped would, ground me in my understanding of how people, you know, how people communicate, which, as you said, it may be at the table of communication scholarship. Communication is so broad in that sense that it you right. can apply it virtually everywhere you go. It's hard to, you know, what is not communication? So mm-hmm. it, it, it is quite, it has an umbrella over quite a few different domains and that I think that Learning those things definitely helped me in my professional life as well as as well as for this, which I find right. great interest in as well. 
Dr. Trinan, Christie said to me one time, I think we oppress Christians around here, which is really interesting that she said that because, you know, I would drive to Mankato for night classes with colleagues of mine and they were taking classes in other disciplines like literature was one and Mm -hmm. they would come out just beat up by the the environment that was just so hostile to their faith. Mm -hmm. Whereas I found the communication department were very, very friendly. And they were I found the same. Yeah. lots of diverse points of view, but we could sure talk about them and and be decent about them. And yeah. oh yeah, I had a great time there too. I had no. It, there didn't seem to be open hostility. There was definitely difference in thought, but that wasn't. Mm-hmm. You know, it didn't come across as yeah intentionally hostile or in a, as an attack in any way. But I can see maybe how other fields might be s- <laughs> more prone oh, to yeah. to that type of. Uh, even, <laughs> even somebody studying poetry would just come out of the, like, man, I got to go take a shower right now because it was just so, everything was just so ugly and antithetical to, yeah, and nihilistic. And, oh, yeah. So, no, shout out to Dr. Christy Trinan. She is great. Great. She was a great support. Mm-hmm. I did she my, had, I had a self study class with her. I yeah, think, I did. Rhetorical I did criticism. Three. I got three. special permission to do three. <laughs> supposed to only do two, but I just thought this is yeah. how I want to learn. I want just I want to read books and talk to someone smart about them. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. yeah, that was the that's when I grad school is very unique in that and and you can find some uh, an area that you have an intense interest in and you can turn that that is the that's the work. That, mm-hmm. And so, I mean, I could do that indefinitely. I think if you oh, if you said too. this is your job, you just go to go to school. Go to school. I would uh, attack that wholeheartedly, <laughs> yeah. without a without a without a moment. Well, hesitation. I loved I loved living some life and then going back to school. And like, mm-hmm. man, this is this is it for me. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, anyway. well, despite despite how much I love school, I'm not currently a professor anywhere, <laughs> <laughs> let alone at MLC. Can't but, you uh, get? Find a place to mail some money in and get a professorship. <laughs> I, There's got to be so a way to do that. I might. I mean, I I still many times consider going back to school. Um, I think education is still a very big passion of mine. I think some of my mm-hmm. ideas about how education would be improved in you know in our in this century compared to you know. You know, the roots of our grade school system are in the Prussian system of the, you know, before Germany was called Germany, I think. And the, maybe there are some ways that we can optimize that. I think that is just, it's, we're way off topic now, but that it's very (laughs) interesting to me. I'm also still very interested in the, like the cutting, bleeding edge uh, tech around video production, mainly in Mm -hmm. LED, those giant LED walls that you see are, very involved in those building out new sources, coding, all sorts of. Mm. It's all just very interesting to me, and I love being able to push the boundaries in that way. So, um, mm. I would I would maybe be able to go to school for something like that. Maybe there's a, a course to teach there or something. But really, it's just all of it comes down to education in some way. Mm-hmm. Just how do you equip? How do you? It's not transferring knowledge, but how do you like facilitate? something. It's like the yeah. art of making people curious about something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that. So my daughter's an epidemiologist and she she does some teaching now. So you just never know mm, what can op- yeah, open up maybe. into we'll that see. kind of a role. Yeah. I would lo- I'd love to also teach something like narrative and this is where maybe we segue back into the 
the oh, okay the topic <laughs> at hand. I was going to tell you I went to my first murder mystery party last night since we're doing oh. tan- tangents. <laughs> what was it called? <laughs> well, it was all about. Christmas characters, I forget what it was called. So I, I was Bob Cratchit. Bob Cratchit. <laughs> Bob Cratchit. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> Were you the murderer? <laughs> no, I was or not. No, no, don't spoil. Maybe not spoil for anyone who else <clears throat> plays the same one. We're, I'm actually actually it's one where you draw you draw to see who the murderer is, and then you read oh. the script based on whether you're innocent or guilty. Interesting. So, could have been I like anybody, that. but it was I'm, like Tiny Tim, and it was Santa Claus, and it was the guy from Christmas <laughs> Vacation, the, the uncle. Santa Claus. <laughs> It was Santa yeah. Claus in the North Pole with a and it was, with it a was, sleigh. Uh, it was the Grinch and Grinch's <laughs> wife and their dog. And Rudolph was uh, in it, and so very funny. It got it really got uproarious. It really got hilarious after a That's while. That's funny. So, I'm scheduled anyway. to do one right after Christmas. It's a it's a at a micro, like a brewery festival where all these micro brewers come mm. together and they're competing for a prize and someone gets murdered there. I think I'm. Oh, I forget the name of my character. Let me pull it up. Um, I was just I was just forwarded it last night. I'm starting to get into character. Uh, <clears throat> Hugh Guzzle. Perfect. <laughs> just just the <laughs> silly type of name. But so I wore no, a scarf and I, I cut the fingers <laughs> off of a glove, a pair of gloves. So I had the fingers sticking out of my gloves and. <laughs> I actually bought a poker from our fire pit. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, it was. That's great. It was a good time. Okay, so back yeah. to our talk. So we have, as we have said many times, two core issues that I think can go a long ways in being prepared for the mm-hmm. questions that come. Because if I can trust my New Testament, and if Jesus is alive, then everything else has to fall into line because mm-hmm. those two things have profound implications. And so we're going to kind of go quickly through a kind of a hand that I have from a class I teach. It's a bunch of bullets, bullets on ways to think about the New Testament um, that get you to that serene confidence that this is a reliable book. So the little quote that starts with by Peter Kreeft, why would the apostles lie? So we're going to start with the reliability of the New Testament. Why would the apostles lie? If they lied, what was their motive? What did they get out of it? What they got out of it was misunderstanding, rejection, persecution, torture, and martyrdom, death by death as martyrs, hardly a list of perks. And so I'm not going to read this in detail. I'm just going to kind of run through officially. We can open it up then. So the New Testament enjoys an embarrassment of riches. 5,800 documentary witnesses to the Greek you get to close to 30,000 when it comes to translations of the New Testament into other languages. And I'm looking at a chart which shows other ancient works, and nothing comes close. Three copies of Sophocles, um, you know, Caesar's Gallic Wars, 251 copies. There's just nothing close to 30,000. Mm-hmm. Um, secondly, when you hear about—actually, you can jump in any time, John, but uh, I'll do another one. When you hear about hundreds of thousands of variants among the documents, that number includes every time a variant appears among the 30,000 texts. So it's a vanishingly small number. And what we can say without fear of contradiction, period, is that there's no, nothing taught in the New Testament that's at stake at all due to variants. There's nothing and, that confuses any teaching. Mm-hmm. And these, so, the variants are more akin to like a, a spelling error that doesn't Jesus Christ or versus Christ Jesus. It's, yeah. it's minor stuff. Minor, yeah. minor. I'm not saying there, there aren't any that would be 
good to know which is the correct reading. I'm not saying there's nothing like that, but mm-hmm. nothing at stake in any way as far as our teaching. And then just given the, you know, the overall volume of these that are, you know, uh, copies of one another as they're, they've been recorded that we have access to at least, um, the, maybe if, if someone comes up and says something like, well, there's just, you know, contradictions all over the place, you could maybe, you know, inquire where one of those contradictions would be and kind of allow that. It's a very strong argument to make against the overwhelming, a number of manuscripts that there are, that there are, you know, variants yeah. everywhere, you would certainly be able to to show one of those things. And maybe there is a, a spelling error or a, you know, a punctuation difference that might be worth talking about, but to not necessarily need to worry about this is uh, something that changes one of the pillars of my faith here. Yeah, we don't need to be afraid of that. What you said is correct. Let's just, let's talk about it. What, what do you have in mind? What's troubling mm-hmm. you about some contradiction? Mm-hmm. My, the first apologetic conversation I ever had was when I was in college at a job and the guy, after he offered me pot, which I declined, <laughs> but he dismissed the Bible because of the contradictions. And I said, like, what? And his example was, and he got this from school, the university, his example was Abraham lying that Sarai or Sarah was his sister instead of his wife. And he did this twice. Same thing. And Isaac did something similar, his son. And so clearly he said a contradiction. And I just kind of scratched my head for a bit. What's the contradiction? Did the same sin twice? Oh, that never happens, you know? <laughs> like, so a contradiction is to say something is and is not true in the same way at the same time. So what is a contradiction? Let's establish that. <laughs> but, but what we were saying before we started recording was the reality is he comes at the Bible as a hostile reader looking for trouble. And I am a friendly reader that I love to see the harmony of it. And so we're just reading it differently. And he would just like to pick a fight at any, at any, pick a fight at any street corner in the scripture. Mm-hmm. But the, the segue there is if you want to talk about a contradiction, how about the one on every page, which is that between God's love and his holiness, between law and gospel, that's the one that counts, right? So that can be mm-hmm. a bit of a road to Christ from that. But I would say there's nothing to fear there when, when that charge is made. We can look honestly at things and, there are some difficulties. I've got two books on my shelf of Bible difficulties. There's nothing without a solution. Mm-hmm. And as a friendly reader, I'm happy to see those solutions too. And I think sure Easter Sunday is a hard one to, to work mm-hmm. out. There's, that, that'd be one we'd have to really study all the accounts of Easter Sunday to, to really piece together all that's happening there. But again, it's all very solvable, and I can even point listeners to an essay if they wanted to track that one down. But nothing we can't deal with very... Um, in a way that leaves us very confident. And I think the, I mean, even if you ask for, say, the hostile reader to present what the, the you know, the contradiction that's be their defeater in that instance, the worst that happens is you don't have an answer right away and you exactly. say, okay, I'll take a look at this. And then you can, you know, there are plenty of other places where you can, you know, inquire, uh, send us some fan mail or, you know, <laughs> you know, but there, you don't have to have necessarily an answer for every tiny minute thing right away. And you can still, you know, maybe I'm eager to look into this further. I'll get back to you and then to continue. So some of the items on this bullet list, 
go down the path of if you were making all this stuff up, making the Gospels up, mm. making the New Testament up, would you do it this way? And so um, the third bullet I have here is New Testament writers include countless embarrassing and inconvenient details about themselves. So if you're trying to establish, let's say, a Peter or Paul as the pillars of the ancient church, why would you do it this way? Why would you fabricate a story that includes their moral failings? I mean, it's just hard to... And so some of these arguments aren't slam dunks by themselves. They just kind of accumulate. Mm-hmm. Signposts. Um, yeah, signposts. You just point in a, a direction. And the Old Testament has this too, though. Who writes their history laying bare all the times of abject spiritual failure on the part of the nation whose history you're writing? Who does it that way? So there's mm-hmm. that ring of truth to the whole scripture, um, but really comes to a head with the apostles. Because um, even other historical accounts from that time period, none of them would ever have said it like this. It just, just stands in stark no. contrast to all of those. The Moabite stone, for example, is just a big boast, leaving out the inconvenient details. That's how, that's how histories are written. And then Old mm-hmm. Testament just stands apart, or both Testaments do. Um, my next point is the New Testament writers include difficult things Jesus said, things that are kind of hard to understand unless you really think about them. Like he said, he talked about the end and said, this generation will not pass away until all these things happen. So it would take too long to get into that verse, and there's a very good solution, but it would take too long to explain it. But the point I'm making here is that no copyist of the New Testament across the whole history of his transmission felt free to change those things and to make them easier or more palatable. So there's no, no evidence of a New Testament in flux. There's no uh, selective editing that happens. No, There's no, it's not, it's not fluid. This. It's not changing across this writing it in a way that I can understand type of editing. Right. It's, yeah. it's all as accurately as we're just kind of copy it as it is and deal with it. Mm-hmm. And so, um, New Testament writers distinguish Jesus' words from their own. It would have been so easy to put words into Jesus' mouth. If you're making it all up anyway, why not have Jesus saying uh, certain things that would have been controversial that the apostles said? So that's a lesser argument, but it's it's on the list. Um, so talk about things that they would not have invented. You would not make it up this way. Um, the more I think about this one, the more it strikes me that why would you have the first witnesses to the resurrection be women? Why would you do that in a cultural moment when their testimony didn't mean anything? Um, similarly, why would you have the last words of John the Baptist before he's killed be a message to Jesus asking, are you the one to come or should I look for somebody else? Why in the world would you invent a story like that? You, you tell if it's true because you were committed to honesty, but you don't make it up that way. And so, yeah, um, keep going or do you want to respond to any? No, I'm, yeah, I'm following along. Okay. I think- okay. This a lot of these kind of go back to we, we mentioned in a previous episode the uh, the there's a communication theory that now that I can think of what it means but not the exact name of it um, expectation violation theory where you know examining the New Testament through that lens seeing just how different the words that he said especially in that time and maybe that's how the Old Testament Jews would have been seeing things, you know, the Pharisees might be the, you know, the ideal, (laughs) here's how they thought about it. And they saw it as blasphemy. It was Mm -hmm. just so outrageous outside of what they had known. Mm -hmm. Exactly right. So the, the first thing I read, why would the apostles lie? 
Um, that takes me back to uh, Lee Strobel's book. How was it called? Uh, I can't think what it's called. It's a famous book, though. Um, so a trial attorney, I believe is what he was, um, who uses the standards of evaluating witness authenticity and applies all those standards to the to the apostles, and they pass them all with flying colors. At the case for Christ, it's called. And so it's just, there's something here that is not to be um, sneezed at, I guess, as far as mm-hmm. the credibility of these writers. It's really quite incredible. Um, they include more than 30 historically confirmed people in their writings. Um, they combine these with countless locations and events that can be investigated historically today. And wherever they're Veracity can be tested, it passes. There might be a couple issues out there that are not fully resolved yet as far as the historical connection of the New Testament, but where, in general, where it can be tested, it passes. Which just makes you think maybe it's also trustworthy on things that are beyond that kind of investigation, the truth of Christ himself. And a lot of that comes from the account of, of Luke, right? Yep, we've talked about we've, him. Yep. We've talked about him maybe at length, but... Yeah, Luke takes the, it the farthest, I would say. Mm-hmm. Just being who he was as a writer, yeah, yeah. Uh, the the next is an example, or the example comes from a car accident. That people see the car accident from different angles; they're going to have different details that they remember. But if their details seem to at all contradict, um, the last thing you say is, "Well, maybe there was no car accident." And so, the fact that the the gospels come from four different witness perspectives. And that there are some things to puzzle over because they're different. That is just the most natural thing in the world. That's just how it works with multiple mm-hmm. witnesses from different uh, vantage points. So it really has the ring of truth compared to if somebody wanted to come along and take all those issues away. That'd be cleaner and easier and smoother, but it would be less. It would have less of that feel of truth. Mm-hmm. So given so, given those accounts, th- with their variant you know, their different vantage points mm-hmm. coming across something that's challenging. You wouldn't be like, well, none of that actually happened. There was no right. occurrence that happened. There was no Christ. That's the didn't last exist. thing you would say. It would yep. be the, like, that's a, a, would be a very far jump <laughs> to make <laughs> exactly. it logically. It would that is be, the last thing you A say. lot of people talk about something and there's a little bit of a contradiction. None of you were talking about anything. You all made it up is a pretty, <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. So the New Testament writers challenge readers to check out verifiable facts. And that, again, Luke took that the farthest, but is by no means alone in that. Um, they describe miracles just as you do other historical events with simple, unembellished accounts. It's dramatically different than the fake Gospels, like the Gospel of... I'm not sure the Gospel of Thomas actually has that kind of story, but other pseudo-Gospels from... Is that a apocryphal? Two or three centuries later... Yeah, Gospel or, of Thomas was, um, it's, I don't know what to call it. It's it's uh, written in, in Coptic, yeah. Um, and apocryphal books are books that are typically questioned as far as their canonicity, mm-hmm. whether they're, mm-hmm. they're, they're full mm-hmm. status in the, in the canon. Yeah. But uh, Gospel of Thomas is written in Coptic or Egyptian language. It's from as late as 200, 200 A.D., it isn't really a history of Jesus. It isn't stories. It's really just some sayings. And some of them, they kind of all amount to a statement of, you've got to go on a quest now and find out find out the truth about God or something like that. It's just very 
it's a different spirit. It's a different message. It comes from not Jerusalem, not from Israel. It comes from a century later. And so you'd have to be a pretty hostile reader of Scripture to think that the Gospel of Thomas is sort of a competitor to the four Gospels we have. Mm-hmm. There really isn't mm-hmm. anything. There's a lot of nonsense out there and you know, movies and books written about these things, but there really is nothing to compete with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we'll say a little bit more about when they were written. When they were written. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, the New Testament, if it were a fabrication, it would mean that some common ancient men, uh, fishermen among them and so on, uh, several fishermen, um, invented a literary genre, we'll call it realistic historical fiction, a kind of writing that wouldn't be seen again for over 1,800 years. And my thought about that is my students at first don't seem to maybe sense how important that is, that you have to say, well, what is the New Testament? If it's not historical, if it's not just a reportage of eyewitness mm-hmm. testimony as it purports to be, then what is it? Well, it's realistic historical fiction. And, and it, the thing is that genres of literature don't just explode into existence without any kind of precedent, without any kind of um, very special circumstances. And so it really, there's more to it than you might think to say, well, if it's not what it claims to be, then what kind of literature is it? And where did the fishermen come up with this, you know? Yeah. Um, Just that's how different the, the account is in exactly contrast right. to the other things that were happening at that time. It would just be mm-hmm. unthinkable to, and again, that's not right. a, the to argument work. by itself that you have to lean on, but right. it's, it's certainly another, <laughs> it would be a, a big leap to say that a handful of fishermen in Galilee, you know, cr- crafted a story this it's designed in to this sound way true and wrote in this way. Right. With a kind of detail to way. make it yeah. sound true. That's just putting a lot on those men. I tell you what. Yeah. Um, it's, and you're right. It's on the list. It's not a slam dunk by itself, but so people will die for things all the time. Now we're back to the apostles dying for their claim that they, knew Jesus and saw him die and rise. People die for things all the time, but they were in a position to know if it was true or false. Mm -hmm. So they would have been willingly dying for something they knew to be false. And that isn't something, not that it couldn't happen or would it be impossible to happen for any number of other reasons, but it's on that list of their profound credibility, Mm -hmm. taking, taking this truth to the grave into some pretty miserable deaths in some cases. And that's the, Peter Kraft, is it? Yeah, that goes back. Well, a lot of people have written in that in that vein, but that's much like the quote I read from Peter Kreeft. Yeah, Mm -hmm. Kreeft. Yeah. So the New Testament writers abandon their long-held sacred beliefs and cultural practices. They adopted new ones, and did not deny their testimony under persecution or pain of death. So just kind of hits that point home. So. just, just so much misinformation out there about the four Gospels, and all of this is just rock-solid stuff. So it, it matters when the New Testament was written, that portions were written in the 50s and 60s AD. Um, we can solidly date the Church Confession, we talked about that recently, to just five or six years, if not two or three years, after Jesus was raised and so on. Certain parts of the New Testament enjoy full consensus among all scholars that they are what they purport to be. On Galatians, First Corinthians, and and so on. Um, and, and by the way, pa- Paul himself stands large among those figures. 
So Paul, or Saul of Tarsus, is a figure known to history. It's not only the New Testament that testifies to him. Known to history, a brilliant man who did an about-face and became Christianity's strongest proponent, retained his brilliance, like not, not like he went crazy or something, and again took his claims about the risen Jesus to martyrdom. And so Paul himself just kind of stands um, um, tall among the figures that we should contend with historically. Mm-hmm. What do you make of what do you make of Paul? What do you make of the about face in his life? And what do you make about the writings that are not in dispute that he wrote, mm-hmm. um, including that critically important text we read recently, First Corinthians fifteen, about the resurrection. So most of the New Testament written before seventy A.D. Um, Almost all the books are widely disseminated in the ancient world um, among the church fathers before 100 AD. And it's just, this is just good information to just be kind of sharp on because of the disinformation that's out there. Mm-hmm. So I think we said a conspiracy here just defies the imagination. Legendary material can't gain traction when a whole generation is still alive who could contradict the legend. And there's more. We can get into prophecy maybe later on things that point in one direction toward the reality of Jesus. But here's my last line. Uh, This gets into prophecy a little bit. The most important person who ever lived, unarguably, who divides history into a before and after, happens to have unique prophetic credentials, which a mere man could not arrange for himself. Sometimes Jesus subconsciously fulfills prophecy, uh, uh, but other times, like his birth, what was done to him, there's just too much there that a person couldn't make happen. Mm-hmm. And so here's the most important figure in history that has prophetic credentials. Um, so to just casually assume there's lots of stories like this in the ancient world or whatever, or whatever uh, simply not true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm just thinking, trying to bring this back towards what would this, where would this come up in, in a conversation? And Being able to have a handful of these uh, little tidbits of evidence, these little signposts that point in that direction, I think is, um, Mm -hmm. I I often run into the type of conversation where I'm asked to make a a rigorous, like almost mathematical proof for say like the existence of God or something like this. But I think being able to, to use these instead and, and not have to take on such a, you know, mathematical, analytical approach to things and just say like, well, let's just look at what we have in front of us. Let's look at things that we can already agree on. I think there's, you is it the minimal facts approach? Right. Have we discussed that before? Yes, we where, did. Mm-hmm. Where you can say like, let's just find things that we can, you know, that are indisputable, that we can't, we can, we can all agree on and let's see what things look like once we have agreed on all of those, once we kind of, you know, can categorize maybe one of these things you're, you know, I, I can, it's contested. Okay. We'll, we'll sort it out and we'll find all of these things that we do agree mm-hmm. on. And what, if that's the evidence that you have in the conversation, then here's what you're, you're able to say. And then you can, you know, let their, like the mystery unravel, I guess, mm-hmm. you know, if you consider all of these things that we've agreed are true and indisputable, now where does the conversation go? 
Yeah, I think the entry point can be just what is the New Testament? Mm. What do we What do we know? What, as you say, what do no scholars really content or, or disagree with? What mm-hmm. do all scholars accept who are credible? And you got the, you got this book written by contemporaries of Jesus who who have all the credibility you could imagine and more, and what they were willing to give up for what they said and so on. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think it's good to have some kind of grasp on, um, as I said before, that you can't easily knock this book out of my hands. Mm-hmm. It, it's it's too phenomenal, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and it does kind of link with the other core issue. These are very much intimately connected, and that is the broad historical consensus about the resurrection. Um, here's a little quote from Gary Habermas, who is the minimal facts person. Scholars, he says this, scholars must provide more than alternative theories to the resurrection. They must provide first century evidence for those theories. In other words, why would a person who's intellectually honest try to come up with a theory of the resurrection and what actually happened, other than that Jesus rose from the dead, that actually flies in the face of all the evidence there is? Um, so I've got a similar list here, but some of these overlap and I can go much faster, maybe, with some of these. Excuse me. I had a number three at McDonald's. Yeah, I, I <laughs> indulge myself. Every now and then I indulge myself. It's not good for me. And what is I always the number forget. three? Number three is a quarter pounder with cheese and fries. Uh, I like and the I, 3C, the, the deluxe. Yeah, 3A is what I got. But, yeah. <laughs> and I always forget how heavy it sits in my stomach and how, <laughs> how you feel afterwards. Like, ah. <laughs> So sorry for burping into the podcast microphone. <laughs> so some of this is really maybe getting beneath the minimal facts we talked about. So why is it a minimal fact? Why do all scholars agree that the disciples believed that Jesus was risen, believed they saw a risen Jesus? Why is that so solid? So some of this kind of falls behind those bigger mm-hmm. picture facts. Yeah. So first of all, here's what we know. Jesus was a real historical figure and so on who died in Jerusalem by Roman crucifixion, who experts at the task. They knew how to kill people and make sure it was done. Buried in a private tomb, no one there expected him to rise. All would need convincing. So it's not that this resurrection event happened because everybody's looking for it to happen and so maybe somebody had to try to help it along somehow. No one expected it. All would need convincing of the fact. Mm-hmm. And that story is there, you know, in the Gospels, plainly. I, I, re- I recall even, you know, Jesus would tell the disciples what he was going to do and sometimes even how he was going to do it in detail. And they were still confused at the, at here's exact, here's. Oh, right. I, it he, sounds like plain English and they're, you know, what do you mean by, you know, you'll die and then come back. You're, exactly right. You're must, are you talking about something else or, and it's. It's coming right down there in from front of you, and it's the Mount of Crucifixion is one of those where Jesus yeah. talked about rising from the dead, and then you get this side conversations. What does he mean by that? Yeah, rise yeah. from the dead. Exactly right. Okay, so, so even his closest followers would need to be convinced of this. And totally. yeah, yeah. Um, when Jesus died, what do you have? You have eleven men terrified, bereaved, hopelessly despondent, locked in a room. That was the state of the church, mm-hmm. it's the so-called church. When something happened to cause it to explode into existence. So the question is, what happened to those 11 men locked in a room? Uh, Think about this as a conspicuous lie from a hostile source. The disciples stole the body while we were sleeping. 
I mean, it's almost comical. If you were sleeping, how do you know that's what happened, right? It's mm-hmm. kind of, but that is really then a testimony of an empty tomb, that you have people trying to explain the empty tomb, hostile witnesses. Um, once again, that the women were the first witnesses just strikes me as incredibly important. Um, let's see, six is actually one of the minimal facts. The disciples believed they had seen actual appearances of the risen Jesus. Um, seven, here's a different one. The disciples could have made the convenient claim that they were met by the Spirit of Jesus. Instead, they were all explicit in making the falsifiable claim in the physical resurrection from the dead, citing many convincing proofs, quote-unquote, that he showed them. So does that make sense to you? They could have said we saw a ghost. They believed in ghosts. We, we heard that on the Sea of Galilee in mm-hmm. the Gospels. So that would have been an easy thing to say. Instead of saying the thing that could be proven wrong very, very easily. Um, powerful forces in Jerusalem, reading number eight here, were highly motivated to squash the resurrection rumor. They needed, needed only to produce the body of Jesus. With that thought goes this thought, that no group we know of in Jerusalem had serious motivation to steal Jesus' body. Who, who wanted to do that? Mm-hmm. Um, nobody wanted to do that, especially not the disciples, but certainly not the enemies either. Mm-hmm. So due to these experiences, the disciples' lives were thoroughly transformed in every case. They were, without exception, willing to die for their claim. This is repetitive, I know, but it just strikes me as significant that they had nothing to gain and everything to lose by lying. So, mm-hmm. 10 is the proclamation of the resurrection was sounded very early. From the very beginning of Christian church history, This is it goes right to the start what we know about the early church, that the resurrection mm-hmm. was part of it from the start. Not a legend that creeps in after centuries when no yeah. one's around to dispute it anymore. And so, and this testimony all took place in Jerusalem, the very place where it happened. So any street corner has people who could tell you where they were when it happened. Mm-hmm. And, and anybody who, um, thousands were in a position to contradict it um, if, if it simply were not true. So this is the kind of evidence historians would just salivate over. It just accumulates. The gospel message always centered around Jesus raised from the dead after he died for our sins. Um, and in 13 here, get, getting toward the bottom, but it is that the Jewish people, you asked questions earlier about how do they understand certain things in the Old Testament? I'm not sure in every case, but they were the last people on the planet in history, you could ever expect to invent a myth that a crucified man was God himself because the Jewish people, through their Jewish scriptures, you know, Hebrew scriptures, gave the world the very highest conceivable picture of who God is and his infinite attributes, all present, all knowing, and so on. Um, so the last people in the world you'd expect to grab onto a legend that a crucified man is that God of the universe. And so that's an interesting one. We, we try to say this is a legend, but why Why would this be the legend? It's, it's such a radical shift from the Old Testament ways that they had been, you know, the, from, it's, it's, it's an interesting, uh, interesting too, that all the prophecies leading towards Christ are present and, mm-hmm. you know, observable. I mean, we have the benefit of hindsight again, but to, to see all of those things coming together, uh, yeah, it, to, 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 to shift and to, for that population to 
craft the things that happened in the New Testament that we are told in lieu of the things that they had grown up with and known their entire, you know, for generations and generations is just such a far, it's another yeah. leap, yeah. Yeah. another huge <clears throat> leap. Clearly something astonishing happened. As a, as a case in point of what you said, it is that Sunday at a moment in history becomes the primary day of worship for thousands of Jews in Jerusalem. The switch from Sabbath of Saturday to Sunday is just mm-hmm. something that begs explanation. So mm-hmm. I file that under, you know, the Christian church is a fact. It just, it is, it exists, it, and it requires explanation, especially yeah. with its sudden explosion onto the scene and the change of what you said, what they did for centuries that defined them as a people to change those things. Mm-hmm. What in the world made that happen? Well, Josephus records many of those things as well, and in a as a outside observer in the area. Yes, right. <clears throat> yeah, I'm not an expert on Josephus. I know that there are there's one quote of a resurrected Jesus that a lot of people think was a pious Christian emendation later on, mm. but that's not the only evidence from Josephus of the reality of Jesus historically. Mm. Um, so I'm not sharp on the details there, uh, but this just goes to we don't need to overstate the case. Yeah. Um, one of the major quotes from Josephus is is contested, at least by my understanding. Um, on the minimal facts list is James, your brother of Jesus, was a skeptic before the resurrection, and he was converted, um, became a pillar in the church in Jerusalem. So he's on that minimal facts list, the conversion of James, Jesus' brother. And I mentioned already, Saul of Tarsus becoming Paul is really quite a compelling story um, when you just look at the whole the whole um, context um, I've mm-hmm. already said that before. So here's a closing summary statement. Um, skeptical counter-theories, in addition to flying in the face of all the evidence there is, can be dispensed with, with minimal preparation. Hallucination theory. We all hallucinate the same thing. Uh, the wrong tomb theory. Uh, the swoon or apparent death theory. He didn't really die. We covered later on. Stolen body theory. and That's the laughable one. The substitute Jesus theory. The wanting to believe theory. Um, he copied pagan myth theory of the myths of dying and rising gods. And I think we said this before we began to record that there's nothing to fear in examining those so called myths of mm-hmm. rising gods that are supposedly similar to not only the gospel story, but the way the gospel story is, is recorded. There's just very little similarity and nothing exists there to bother us. If a given theory may fit with one or two of the minimal facts that all historians accept, it will run headlong into others. The resurrection is not legend, lie, or embellishment. Crucifixion was designed to erase a human being who was not fit to live or be remembered. There's only one reason you know the name of Jesus, and that is that he rose. And so there it is. It's a lot to take in and a lot to process. Mm -hmm. I would say it this way, if I ever wanted to leave Jesus and leave this faith, there's just a lot here I just would not let myself think about. I know too much about prophecy. I teach Hebrew, right? I just know too mm-hmm. much about these things. And um, they're very stubborn facts. They really are. Yeah. What's, what's interesting to me, though, is to think about the fact that if I were to use these arguments with some unbelieving person, I should be honest with them and myself that I'm really not explaining why I believe. Mm-hmm. The reason I believe is not these things. I believe because God chose me for this before the creation of the world and you as well. 
Um, he moved history to arrive at to arrive at my baptism, and he sustains this faith in me by the means of grace. That's why I believe. Mm-hmm. And so these are simply stone in the shoe. This is to cause you to think again if you've too lightly dismissed Jesus and the historical record. Um, these are to not let some young person at the universities sit in that place where a prophet said no one believes this stuff anymore. And just, no, you can't, you can't say that. that. That I can't let you get away with mm-hmm. because it would be too toxic of a thing to allow to stand unchallenged because it's mm-hmm. just misinformation. And yeah. so there's a usefulness for this stuff, but it's a limitation too. Yep. Isn't really explaining what you and I believe, because to say it this way, this we haven't been talking law and gospel this whole time. It's been mm-hmm. implied, maybe it's been in the background of our thoughts, but it's law and gospel, the need for a savior, and then the savior presented mm-hmm. by the word. That's what creates faith. But at very least, this stuff is interesting, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's like a like as I said, like all the signposts are pointing towards this one pivotal moment on a on a hill outside the city, and um, to to have all of that. I mean, we just listed off. Uh, maybe thirty or so different, you know, little little signposts on their own that mm-hmm. don't necessarily aren't meant to be as rigorous proofs. But like yeah. as you said, like to leave for me to leave my faith, I would have to be willingly. It'd be like I would be in the face of all of these things. It would be like swimming upstream. <laughs> You're mm-hmm. swimming against the current now. Like the current is pulling me towards all of the. It all flows together. Uh, I would, you'd have to get out of the water and just ignore the thing altogether in order to to move in that direction. Yeah. It's um, but again, I, I think you also bring up a really good point too: is that this isn't the like none of repeating these thirty things is not what will bring someone to faith, and that that being the ultimate, you know, if that is the goal of our apologetics, is to show what having faith is like, and to let the Holy Spirit do His work. These are useful only only up to a certain point, and then it does get to the more law and gospel side of things, where you can mm-hmm. witness, give your own testimony, right. and um, then it's we, in God's hands. As we've said, yep, exactly right. <clears throat> we can do the empirical thing for the kinds of things that can be looked at in that way, but then that becomes testimony to what you and I know by faith. It all points to. And so, yeah, we, I have another handout here. I'm not sure it's all that relevant anymore. I think there'd be too much overlap. In in the class I teach, I have panels and 20 positive mm. arguments. But I think enough of this has come up already. There's probably more. But um, unless you want to go further. Um, I would, I'm not as familiar with the, the okay. details, so I, I wouldn't know exactly where the overlap is. I think a lot of it is very, very similar, just that here's a, here's a you know, a list, a, a broad swath of things that all point towards the, the fact that Jesus rose, and that being the most important part of that. Right. And then that, that, can, that can lead elsewhere. And maybe to help, you know, provide some arguments, uh, some counter arguments to some of these other, you know, suppositions about what Jesus was or what the figure of Jesus was like, or what the, you know, the legend of Christ in the early century, all of these things that you can rather quickly dispel, um, Mm -hmm. or at least, you know, have some things to, well, how about let's chew on this for a little bit. 
Yeah, I'll, I'll mention one maybe just to give the flavor of this, but I think it's time for dessert. But mm-hmm. So some of this kind of overlaps, as I said. That's why I'm hesitant to go too, too much further. But put it in these terms, the historical advantage Christianity um, enjoys over other worldviews. Mm-hmm. It's kind of come up, but just to put a fine point on that the, the whole scope of the Bible intersects with known history, people, places, events in thousands of ways. To be a Mormon, um, we pray for those people, but it would be to to take at face value the account of one person, Joseph Smith. To be a Muslim would be to take at face value the account of one person named Mohammed. It doesn't have that same advantage of that the whole story, miraculous though it is, intersects with known history, people, places, events, across the scope of thousands of years. Mm -hmm. So that's an example of things to contend with. Larry Lunatic Lord is on the list. We already talked that through. So I think maybe that's good enough for now. Yeah. I'm just looking through the rest of the the notes that we had just in preparation, a few Mm -hmm. things that were interesting. One is a quote Mm -hmm. by C.S. Lewis. I've been studying myths all my Mm -hmm. life. This is not what they sound like. (laughs) Just (laughs) to think of how you would contrive something. uh, If you were trying to contrive something, this is not how you would do it. And to, yeah. Yeah. Just double clicking on that. Looking at some of the, some of the pseudo gospels. I mean, they just have outrageous things in them. Uh, At the resurrection, there are torches flying in midair and figures 20 feet tall. And I'm I'm not confident (laughs) about the details here, but you just, it's a different kind of writing than the reportage of facts that the apostles um, put down. So, the only other addition I have is the this um, if a foot if you think of a foot as a year, the earliest manuscript evidence for Alexander the Great is remove is a football field away from his life, you know, hundreds of years after. Whereas with with the New Testament, you're within you know five or six feet <laughs> at the most. You're a yard yeah. away at most. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and that is really just not putting into pers- yeah, and putting that into perspective, and, and that as well as the overwhelming you know textual evidence that we have, the actual physical manuscripts that we able to, and those of maybe some that we aren't even aware about, um, is pretty staggering. An embarrassment mm-hmm. of riches, as you said. So mm-hmm. I just thought that was an interesting way to think about you know yeah. for other people. So you know, no one's disputing the existence of Alexander the Great. And yet here's the evidence that you can, you know, sum up for, for this character. And then to, to compare that to that of Christ is, um, right. And, and so, I, yeah, I can't, I can't fathom it. Yeah. We're not trying to I'm be seeing it all right here. Exhaustive about this stuff. You just, yeah. you just like to circle back. I, did I say it this way? The apostles remembering events 25 years later, I'm writing it down. This is not what you had for, for lunch on a Tuesday, right? This is mm-hmm. this is life-altering events that they were calling. Now, as Christians, you and I also lean on the fact that Jesus promised them his spirit to remember everything he taught them. And so that's part mm-hmm. of the story for us. But just thinking apologetically, um, that's pretty crazy evidence, you know? Mm-hmm. It's just pretty crazy. I think of it, what if I was a Christian who had been fed what we called fideism? How do I know it's true? And you say, well, you just got to believe. And then took a deep breath and just dared 
to look at, is there any evidence for this stuff? And just, you know, with trembling, looked at the evidence and suddenly saw this mountain. That this isn't just, you just got to believe. Mm-hmm. Um, but that there are all kinds of signposts, as you said. So, I don't know, it's funny. I, I, I feel like when I first dived into apologetics, the first year or so, it didn't necessarily have a good effect on me. I'm not, I'm not sure why. Um, it might be something like what C.S. Lewis said about, I win, I win this debate, but that very point I won in the debate about Christian truth afterwards feels the flimsiest to me because it seems like it rests on me and my powers mm-hmm. of reason. So maybe it was something like that. But yeah. after that first year or so, now I've been studying this stuff and teaching it just on this kind of basic level for probably seven, eight mm-hmm. years now. Mm-hmm. And it really has gotten me to a place of utter, utter confidence, just complete, total confidence. And whether the evidences are more of a psychological effect than, than the deeper thing law and gospel does in my soul, mm-hmm. but it still has brought me to a place. So I can have lots of questions, mostly about myself and my, my sin and foolishness and so on. But questions of the reality of Jesus, I'm just <clears throat> pleased to be able to say that they are behind me. They're just completely behind me. And uh, I'm thankful for that. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, I think that there's this, this is our, our last apologetics talk, or did we have one so. more? I'm trying no, to I, remember. I think there was one more that was, maybe there was something with narrative. I can't remember how we had discussed, but. Oh, right. So there, there might be another, we'll, we'll, we'll sort it out in the. We did in, so much with narrative early on that I'm I'm not confident that it didn't already come up that there's a way to approach witnessing as mm-hmm. you ask yourself, what story can I tell is, is the way to get to a witness drawn yeah. from the Gospels. And so I just don't remember if we've already hit that one hard. Maybe. <laughs> if not, it we'll, might, be a, good, we'll might be a good one. Maybe it would be a nice, like a... A finishing touch on the yeah because it would episode. pull us would pull us way back if if we've let the communication issue a little bit or if I have it would mm-hmm. be right back to that yeah to so that maybe there will be another episode kind of uh, you know more closely related to the actual communication theories that are underlying all of this yeah. uh, especially narrative paradigm which is I think one of my favorites. Mm-hmm. Um, I would love to go the, back and find out that we didn't do this already. <laughs> yeah, I think <laughs> I, I, don't, I, do I enjoy don't recall that it. we did. So, I mean, we'll transition to dessert. I have a few, uh, like a little sampler, I suppose. One is that uh, through the recording of all of these um, episodes of late, specifically the apologetics ones, I've gone through uh, building a new computer. My old one was very much... Uh, broken. It was mm-hmm. randomly freezing. It caused quite a few technical difficulties. Have that behind me now in terms of the actual machinery, but still working on you know catching up on all of the editing for these episodes. So by the time you hear this one, you know all of that will have been done. But at the time that I'm recording it, there are still uh, a few to be to edited and and then um, you know staggered released throughout. You know, hopefully all of them will be out before. Christmas. We're recording this like midway through December. So, um, yeah, that's my first one is that Mm, I'm just, yeah, it's good to be doing this more frequently. Yeah, I agree. It's exam Um, week here. So this mm, is a nice break from kind of the, one of the least pleasant weeks I have of the year just because of all the grading. Yeah. I've had a great semester with students. 
just some of the best conversations I've ever had. Been wonderful. Yeah. But exam week is just kind of what it is. Did you still give out the, is it like a feedback form? And then I remember you, you'd had one for maybe it was IPC or it's like, what could I do better in the class? And then you, you did this the first time and then you start reading them and you, it starts getting very, yeah, that a was, glass of wine or something. That, <laughs> yeah, that story is when I had five sections of interpersonal communication in a row, Tuesday and Thursday. I was also in the research course at Mankato State. Mm. And so I combined two birds and I took a special survey. Like mm. what, um, what was the question? What should Paustin do differently? And then a scale of one to five, how important would it be for him to make the change? And so, yeah, exactly right. You read by Rattan and go get a glass of wine and <laughs> read 10 more, get the bottle. <laughs> no, I'm just, just kidding. Yeah. Don't mean to be flippant about that. But by the time I got to, there must have been about 75 of them. By the time I got to like 40 or 50, I started to get really excited because there were some themes emerging that I knew I could fix and do mm-hmm. better at. And so, yeah, anyway, that goes way back. Yeah. Even before your day, I think. Very likely, I, <laughs> I would imagine. Um, yeah, I, exam week. I mean, it's been a, a minute since I've... I've done one of those. My brother actually, um, my youngest brother just graduated from from Bethany. I'll give a shout out to to Nathan. Just graduated from mm. from Bethany. He's uh, in the National Guard. Not sure exactly what he's doing, but we were able to pull our entire family together all in the same place at the same time for the celebration of that. So that was kind of like our Christmas gift to our our father because we haven't been mm. all together at the same time. So that's my Thanks. you know my a nice little warm morsel of dessert. <laughs> I That's, suppose just like a, it was like, yeah, it was a, it was a good, it was a good time. We had a tab on the Ave in Mankato. We had a little, you know, rented a reserved a little space and had some friends and family and it was a, it was a good time. How cool is that? Yeah. Hey, you know, New Ulm is getting classy. I can't, I'm not going to remember the names of all these places. One is Sweet Haven Tonics. It's got all these really cool restaurants all of a sudden. You feel like you're in the cities. One is a one is a rooftop thing. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. And, so yeah. I know the. I think I know the. It was a coworker. We both worked at Lola's, and I think he owns the. There's a speakeasy. Right. Yeah. In like the back alley with the purple light. Right. Uh, there's several fun, places. That was a like fun that, one. Yeah. I have a little touch on the logo of that one, and uh, but he's he's got quite a few. I think he has also the coffee shop, and so he's just he's doing a lot of a lot of cool things. Yeah. Cool to get back oh, back there that. soon. He has a he has a real authentic pizza place. We we went a few weeks ago, so we couldn't go on the roof, but mm-hmm. you could see how cool it would be. Well, Connie had him, the man you're talking about, as a piano student. Oh, and as a kid, interesting. What do you want to do? I want to own a restaurant. <laughs> Isn't that cool? That's awesome. Yeah. And so I got to meet. I had never met him before, but he came out as you know. Mm-hmm. Can we see the chef and mm-hmm. did that whole thing? And yeah, very I should cool. I should find the names of those places. But, yeah, it'd be um, good to get back to New Ulm sometime. It's been a minute. I remember when we first started recording these, I would drive down and we'd physically be, I'd had my little field recorder and we'd mm-hmm. record these. But now yeah. we have the, at least we're, we're still able to do them uh, remotely. But mm-hmm. yeah, New Ulm, a lot of fond memories. Mm-hmm. I just, uh, sometimes I'm driving, I, I wish there wasn't a stop sign here. And then I think of New Ulm <laughs> with no stop signs really anywhere. <laughs> right. The one-way streets and the unwritten yeah. rule about who has right of way. 
Yeah. If you're going north-south, <laughs> you have the right-of-way. <laughs> and not everybody knows that rule, apparently. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so for dessert, for me, um, it is that the views of this podcast don't necessarily represent the views of Martin to College. <laughs> um, I want to talk about the TV show, The Chosen. So it's a TV show about the Gospels. They're in episode four is coming out. Um, I think January, February is going to be all in theaters first. It's mm. been destroying all these blockbuster movies as far as when it goes to a theater. It just outpaces these huge Hollywood productions. So it's kind of cool to think about. The writers of The Chosen say this isn't, we're not making any claims about, for example, the lives of the apostles. It's just plausible that they had backstories. They were real people with real lives and real problems. And so they're not saying it's true that Matthew was on the spectrum. <laughs> they're not saying it's true that Thomas brought the wine to Cana um, as a vintner. But just that it's plausible. And that's, so you, if you're going to watch the show, you kind of got to know what it is and know that that's what they're doing. You know, mm -hmm. It does bring up things that are kind of fun to think about and can be controversial, like, did Jesus need to write the Sermon on the Mount? There's this whole episode where he's writing mm -hmm. it. He's pacing around, and Matthew's his scribe, and Matthew gives feedback, and just mm -hmm. puts that question in your head of, is, could that be true? Or mm -hmm. did he just, just speak, and it was just yeah the wisdom he had total access to? But yeah, neither, I don't know. So neither of those, and I'm, I'm guessing that it's the story is constructed in a way that is meant to be, this is plausible, but even if this was true or alternate, doesn't change any right. of what we exactly. actually know about. No about one's this. claiming so, these things are true. No one's claiming it. And maybe um, that's a that's what, sometimes what's hard to do about historical pieces like this is that in order to make it compelling to watch, you almost need to have the sort of hu you have to see the human there. You right. have to have some of those details filled in so that you can actually relate to them as a yeah. as a viewer, at least of a visual medium like that is what yeah. I've I've found. It's hard to, you know, y you have to make some guesses as to what could have happened in order to actually fill it out in that form. Yeah. And it's just very interesting, like sometimes which which decisions you make. So it's a movie that's coming out as a show? Um, it's season four is coming out. In the new year. And they're going to release it. Three episodes, one night in the theater, then mm -hmm. three, then two. And okay. so we went to one show like this last year, and it was just really cool. It just, I've seen the whole thing three times. Um, mm -hmm. So somebody asked in class last week something about, what if someone doesn't think of Jesus as human, you know? They think of him as ethereal and otherworldly and stuff. And I just said, watch The Chosen Man. <laughs> because mm -hmm. it's a it's a unique portrayal of Jesus that is just incredibly human. Perfectly mm -hmm. so, but incredibly relatable. The first episode, you're just waiting the whole time for the re the reveal, I call it, of, okay, who's going to be Jesus in this mm -hmm. thing? How are they going to mm -hmm. play him? And it comes away at the end, and I was hooked. It just, yeah. I was the way they pulled that thing off. Um, you would appreciate. I don't know if you watch much of it, but you'd appreciate the the filmmaking side of it because it's mm -hmm. finally some Christian entertainment that it works. It really, really from a, works from a non-hostile reader. <laughs> right, totally. So there was one show they did um, over a year ago, I think it was, but they gathered probably I don't know Gen Zers or millennials, probably Gen Gen Zers, just young people. 
around mm-hmm. 20 or so from all around the country. Different backgrounds. There was one was homosexual. One was came out of a super abusive, almost cult-like church, and just all kinds of backgrounds. Mm-hmm. And they were brought to some studio in California. They didn't know what it was or why they were there, and they just showed them. I think season one of The Chosen, and just had roundtable conversations about it. It was incredible the way they were. Oh, and they filmed that as well. The, yeah, and there becomes a, like a documentary yeah. about these people watching The Chosen and discussing mm. it. And it's very Interesting. moving and very emotional. It's very fascinating. They're, they're encountering in a certain medium who Jesus is. Mm-hmm. And, and so people I can imagine being bothered by the show. I remember I was on a website, and uh, it was a Wells website, and somebody wrote in caps um, that shows and directly contradicts the Word of God. And what he's reacting to is, I think the order of the order of the miracles or something. And I just think, dude, get a perspective. If, if a billion people might see this show eventually, which is what their goal is, um, I, would, I would ask a skeptical friend to watch The Chosen just as another way to be introduced, you know? Mm-hmm. So what I say about um, anything that might be controversial, well, some of that's good because they have Mary Magdalene, after she comes to faith, and she, she's been traumatized, right? She's been, she's a prostitute and been raped and stuff and, um, by Romans. So she's triggered by a Roman soldier and she kind of has a, a second fall, goes back to the tavern and just drinks herself silly and so on. And that was scandalous in the evangelical church, the thought that she could fall like that. So in some ways it confronts you with really good and important things. Mm-hmm. You think about... Um, Simon the Zealot and Matthew the Tax Collector being both among the Twelve. And you just think about that a little bit, who these people are and mm-hmm. how diametrically opposed they would have been to each other and how much hostility that would have involved. And So some things just makes you think about it in a really use, useful way. Uh, there was an yeah. episode where one of the Jewish festivals, the Festival of, Booth, of Booths, commemorating the time in the wilderness, they did a show about that, and it's just I had never really imagined that festival. I really understood it. It's just mm-hmm. really quite beautiful. They're in the desert, but they construct these little shelters and decorate them and have just a warm meal in it and just talk about their history. And So <clears throat> that's valuable to just have that access to certain things I'd never pictured. Yeah, it but puts you in the time and place. It really does. Yeah, it really does. Jesus has a sense of humor and some of his really funny stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he heals... So this is the kind of thing they do. He's at a, the house of a Samaritan who is lame. Mm-hmm. And he draws out the man's story. And the story actually is the story of the Good Samaritan. But, um, and so I don't know how I feel about that. Jesus told a story. But that could, it have a, could there have been a backstory to it that was actually mm-hmm. kind of true? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, but after the, the Samaritan guy is the guy who robbed robbed and left the other man for dead and he's consumed by guilt over it and he says i don't i could be a murderer i don't even know if he's alive and then jesus jesus says he lived and it's just this really cool <laughs> moment of how do you know his wife mm-hmm. says i think he knows <laughs> and, and then it's dark and they got to go back to where they're staying with the woman at the wells house okay we have mm-hmm. to go back and and jesus says to this, we should probably get going because who knows, we might meet somebody in the road that might 
<laughs> beat us up or something. <laughs> and everybody's looking at him like, <laughs> and then he says, too soon? <laughs> <laughs> so is that is that oh, kind of that's great it's kind of that kind of humor kind of modern humor but yeah this the episode with the children it's just he's just a funny guy with kids and he makes mm-hmm. them laugh with the noises he makes and stuff and it's just a very very different portrayal yeah and he, that's and interesting especially the humor part because that's usually not <clears throat> the no, the oh, no. the lens that you see through you know like the new testament but I mean, that's one of my favorite parts of your uh, your dissertation in the Old Testament was the there's a I think a whole section on humor, mm-hmm, something right. like the like there is some very palatable irony in you know the false god needing to be like nailed down so that it doesn't fall over and mm-hmm. uh, things like this where it's just there's not uh, it's not out of it's not unreasonable well, he, to think that there was this aspect of of these well, these characters humor is just the ability to see the absurdity of our situation mm-hmm. and and humor is a form of truth telling that is it it gets the truth in mm-hmm. and the the false prophet thing was just like c.s lewis in lots of his books would have a moment of if i could just get you to laugh if i could just get you to laugh and see mm-hmm. the absurdity of what you're doing um yeah and so my line has been kind of, if God is the inventor of every wholesome, good human thing, of course, every human thing can be distorted, but mm-hmm. but then have no sense of humor. It doesn't make sense yeah. to me, you know? Yeah. But that's Seems what I mean like by- A gift of God, <laughs> humor. Whether, yeah. When, whether you agree or not, I always go back to the thing, agree or not with the choices the producers have made. I go back to the thing, well, was it worth the ride? And it is always worth the ride because of the things mm-hmm. you think about and whoever, yeah. whatever Jesus is really like, it's going to be way better still than the actor mm-hmm. portraying him. His name is Jonathan Rumi. So we're not, not allowing that image of Jesus to become my image of Jesus. I want mm-hmm. to remember this is just an actor, <clears throat> you know, playing a part, but it does, it's, it's more thought provoking than any portrayal I've seen. Mm-hmm. That's very it's, interesting. I think the, especially you said at the beginning, just to know that this is, we're, we're crafting a story that's plausible, but not necessarily true. And that's the intention, but to get you to, you know, to make you think about this in a different way, or maybe confront it in mm-hmm. a different way that's more accessible. And then maybe it leads towards, you know, someone opening scripture for the first mm-hmm. time, you know, yeah. what, what other blessings could come from that? I hope the show doesn't go off the rails. I, I don't think that will happen. Um, one of the studios they've been connected with is run by Mormons, and that creates some controversy. Um, Dallas Jenkins mm-hmm. was saying that <clears throat> we all wanted simply to tell the story of the four Gospels. And we're going to make that story come to life. So I don't think it's going to get into anything mm-hmm. where at the end it's going to suddenly disturb Christians. Um, I don't see him doing that. But um, anyway. Yeah. That's Very interesting. My, I'll, have to, I'll have to carve out some time to try to yeah you got to give it a chance to grow on you i would say is it is it uh is it streaming somewhere or is it it's uh it's streaming on uh amazon prime i think for sure has all three of the all three seasons that are out it's been in different places there's a free app um, i see that you can get um that doesn't always work for me as i try to cast it to my tv sometimes it does Mm -hmm. sometimes it doesn't um I think YouTube has 
a lot of free episodes. Okay. Um, but for sure, Amazon Prime is. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah, very interesting. I'll have to I'll have to check it out. I look forward to it, especially the you know adapting stories. Not necessarily. I mean, this is a very unique. You know, there's a lot of criticism you know inherent around that. But even you know any type of crafting a narrative is always very um, very intriguing. Mm-hmm. The choice because you have to make choices right that are going to be up for discussion at the very right. minimum. So, uh, but to make right. something cohesive, you, you need to fill in some of those gaps. And so to see where they get filled and, you know, other thought provoking things that you can, beautiful ways that you can weave them all together is always, uh, mm-hmm. a joy to see when it's done well. Right. So yeah, I'll have to check it out. Yeah. 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 I mean, sometimes you just have to <clears throat> appreciate that it's helping you not miss some of the details. Mm-hmm. Like the episode where the woman with the issue of blood just wants to touch the tassels of his garment, but he stops and talks with her. And meanwhile, Jairus's daughter is dying and she dies and the word comes. I mean, some of this is just, you know, it didn't look the same as that. The people weren't the, you know, mm-hmm. weren't the same. And yet there's a detail there that's really worth kind of lingering in and reflecting on mm-hmm. just her it touching. places you right there. Yeah. The, the gospel of Mark says she told him everything. So the episode tells her whole story of just what kind of suffering you go through when you're bleeding for 18 years. Mm-hmm. But then they have that moment of she told him everything while Jairus is waiting in the wings, you know? Yeah. And so that's, and that's like the ticking time bomb under the table type of, yeah, you know, it, it, it's a portrayal, some, but it's as accurate yeah. as you could make it. Yeah. Is what I would say. The, the man who was at the pool of, Bethesda must have been, or Pool of Siloam for, I think, 38 years. That's a really cool episode because they tell the whole, they, they make the 38 years real mm-hmm. in a very, very artistic way. Yeah. You know, kind of black and white montages of his life. And so you get to feel 38 years. Very interesting. Yeah. And they make him the brother of Simon the Zealot. So that's the kind of thing they do. Mm-hmm. You know, um, they're just going to fill in gaps yeah. just to make it realistic, even though they're not claiming yeah. anything. Yeah, so, the more things you can connect it to, I suppose the the easier it is to relate to it or to find a yeah I something to just, latch onto. It all becomes very real. Mm-hmm. It became real in the way that my trip to Israel was. I mean, it's just Bible everywhere. Jesus is everywhere. You know, we go to mm-hmm. Israel. Um, back to what our topic was today: the fact that we know Caiaphas' house. And so I was in Caiaphas' house. Did I say this already to you before? I, I ever, don't remember Caiaphas' house specifically. I remember we talked a little bit about your trip over, but yeah. Uh, so I might have said this. So just quickly, there's mm-hmm. a there's a well, a cistern, at his house, and you can go inside that cistern, and someone can read with a candlelight the the psalm that that captures Jesus being in the cistern, and mm-hmm. the last word of the psalm is "and darkness was my only friend," and then they turn the lights out, and it's just. Uh, call it a theological imagination, which mm-hmm. is not not imagination, imagination, but it's, you're able to have Im- mental images mm-hmm. for the things that we know and believe and trust. And yeah. so I think there's a linkage there somewhere that this show helps me with my theological imagination to have images, mm-hmm. um, concreteness and realism to the four Gospels, which is not unlike what happens when you visit 
actually get to visit Israel. Yeah. Anyway. <clears throat> Very cool. Yeah. So uh, we... That was apologetics. A lot of, a lot of dessert. Yeah. I like it. That was apologetics. We might have a, a brief follow-up episode. Maybe we won't. Not sure. Um, go check it. Are you going to check that or should I? What we've, what we've uh, talked about. I will. I will check. Okay. Uh, I'm going through all of <laughs> editing I mean, the rest if, of these as well. So if we did a full-on thing about narrative witnessing, it'll be a big stretch on recording. That that takes I, a while, and so yeah. I think we could probably spot it pretty quickly. I don't. I don't recall that we we went over any of this portion and or if we did i was blissfully unaware of covering that much material and was being more anecdotal but uh, thanks for either way doing that yeah i'll be working through that hopefully i can get these all out before before christmas and then uh yeah hello <laughs> hello <laughs> good boy <laughs> good boy <laughs> Cue the music. Okay. <laughs>